everybody. My name is Maddie. I serve as the creative arts pastor here. And I'm so honored to be here with you this morning uh, to share the truth of the gospel with you. So before we get started, let's just say a quick prayer. Center our hearts before the Lord um, as we open his word, because opening his word is a powerful thing that we have the opportunity of doing. So Jesus, we just center ourselves before you this morning. God, we know that change happens when we open your word. So God, may this morning, may lives change. May chains be broken, God, just because we opened your word this morning. Lord, we love you so much. We submit this over to you as we humbly bow before you this morning, saying that you are holy, holy, holy. Lord, we love you so much. Amen. So this morning, we're continuing our series, Blessed, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. And last week, Pastor Luke kicked us off with the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. So before we dive into today's passage, we're going to recap just a little bit what he talked about. So here is the scene. Okay, word is starting to spread about this Jesus guy. And as Jesus is walking with his disciples, all of a sudden, this ginormous group of people starts to follow them. And this is definitely a hodgepodge group of people. You've got the poor, you've got the wealthy, you've got the sick, you've got the religious leaders, the middle class, different races, different upbringings. I mean, you would never see these people together. I mean, these people would not be caught dead around each other. You seriously have to imagine yourself there. There are thousands of people gathered around this hill. I mean, these people are from all different walks of life, probably bumping shoulder to shoulder. Some of them maybe haven't even met one another before. I mean, I'm thinking it would be pretty rough to be the guy in the back of this crowd. I, I mean, seriously, he had no chance of hearing or seeing what was going on. They didn't have microphones. They didn't have speakers. So this guy doesn't know what's going on, but he probably is just so desperate to be there, which is why he's still there, right? But I do think that there is something so beautiful about the amount of diversity that was at the Sermon on the Mount. Right? I just named all those people groups. You have the wealthy, you have the poor, you have the sick, you have the really healthy, right? You have the middle class, you have all these different groups of people, yet they're all gathered. Didn't matter where they were coming from or where they were going, but they were all gathered to sit at the feet of Jesus, and that is beautiful. But like I said, word is starting to spread about this Jesus guy and the message that he has been speaking and the healing and the miracles that he has been doing. And people are curious. They want to know what's up. So Jesus looks at these crowds. He observes his situation and he calls his disciples over to him and goes, hey, you know what, guys? We should probably talk about what's going on here. And the reason he would do that is because the disciples most likely would have been super uncomfortable around some of these people. I mean, they would have seen the religious leaders and they would have been like, oh, cool, that's sweet. These guys are going to be super impressed with me and what Jesus has to say. And they would have seen the middle class, you know, the people from their region of origin, and they would have been like, oh, cool, it's my friends, it's my family. But they would have seen the poor, and they would have seen the sick, and they would have been really uncomfortable because they're not used to associating with them. And they probably would have seen the other towns, different races or people groups, and would have been uncomfortable because they've been taught not to like them. I mean, they've been taught their whole lives that health and wealth and power are these signs of blessings from God, and so the sick and the lowly aren't to be associated with. 
But Jesus knows that and decides, hey, it's time that we had a chat about what being blessed actually looks like in the eyes of my father. And so last week, Pastor Luke talked about the misconception that we all have about being blessed. You know, we've all understood being blessed to mean to have literal blessings. But in reality, this word blessed means favor. It translates to favor. God's favor is on those who fill in the blank. So this is a process of unlearning what we and the disciples at the time would know that a blessing or having many blessings is this mark of approval from God. But in reality, that's not the case at all. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's correcting the notion that the world has been living by. Every statement that Jesus makes through the Beatitudes is essentially saying, hey, everything that you thought that you knew about the way that my father worked isn't quite what you think it is. Everything that you thought about blessings and being blessed and treating people is upside down. It's completely different than what you thought because in reality, God's favor is on the hurting. God's favor is on the sick. God's favor is on the broken. He has compassion on those people and it seems backwards, but that's exactly the point. So Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the translation there is God's favor is on those who are poor in spirit, who are lacking in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Translation, God's favor is on the morning. He will comfort them. But today's passage is blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So blessed are the meek. God's favor is on the meek. What does that even mean? Right? What, is that, what does that even look like? Well, to be meek means to be quiet or gentle. It means to be submissive, to have patient restraint, and the reality of this is demonstrated in two different ways, and you will likely fall into either of these camps. So you are either, one, meek by choice. This is where you have authority. You have power in some way, shape, or form, but you choose not to use it or abuse it. I mean, the best example that I can give that demonstrates meekness by choice is Jesus himself right? I mean, he has all of the power of heaven. He could have brought down an army of angels around him. He could have smited anyone and built himself the throne of thrones, but he didn't. He did not do any of that. And instead, he chose to come down to earth to this little know-nothing dirt town with ordinary people doing ordinary things, and that's where he decided to change the world. I mean, talk about restraint, the man with every power and every opportunity and reason to use it, and he never did. So you could be meek by choice, but you could also be meek by force. And this is when you are currently in a situation in your life where you have no areas of being the authority or the power. This would be oppressed people's. These people had no choice in their meekness. It is not your fault that you were born when and where you were. 
It is not your fault that systems and people failed you, but unfortunately, by no choice of your own, it does mean that you had to suffer the consequences of those failings. And the reality is, is that one time or another, we have all fallen into both of these camps. You have been the person with the upper hand before, but you have also been the person on the receiving end of that as well. So let's talk about each of these. Let's say you are meek by choice. This choice includes the daunting task of foregoing worldly power and authority, and man, is that not an enjoyable experience. Choosing to live meekly is not conducive to the ways of the world, right? Because we live in a world where money and power and fame and glory, that's the true mark of success, right? To be right or correct is everything and protecting yourself is a lifeline. But Jesus is saying, blessed is the person who has chosen to forego that. Blessed is the person, God's favor is on the person who has chosen to walk away from all of that. So this could look like having the ability to hurt someone or hold something over them, but not. Choosing not to. This could look like when you're in an argument with someone and you could say something that you know would end the argument, you know, maybe crush their spirits a little, but hey, at least you got your point across and won, right? Yeah, no, being meek looks like choosing to love that person and holding your tongue instead. It looks like actively making the choice to live lowly, restraining your tongue and authority that you think that you have over people. And in the pain and the difficulty of living in meekness, having the upper hand and choosing to lay it down, God looks at you and says, I value you. You might think that you are pulling the short straw on this one, but I value you and I have favor on that. So let's talk about camp two. This is the person with nothing. No power, no authority, no voice, the oppressed. And Luke talked last week about how the common belief was and still is that success and achievements and power are the signs of God's blessing on one's life. But what Jesus is saying here is that the person with none of that is absolutely valued by God. And so the encouragement to the meek is that even with nothing, they are valued by God. But the challenge is, is to actually live into that to surrender the need and the craving for the power that we don't have. I mean, it's the forever struggle of fighting the lie to have the upper hand or that power or authority or the best this or the best that will uh, have, give you value. I mean, this is the lie that's been coming at us since the apple, but the beautiful truth from Jesus is this, that we are simply enough because he says so. We are simply enough because he says so. You have nothing to prove. You have nothing to prove. What do you have to prove? You are not more loved because you are better than everyone else. 
You are not more respected because you think that you have the upper hand over other people. I mean, what do you gain from believing that your worth is in other people's opinions of you? Your worth is not defined by the authority that you think that you need or the authority that you think that you have. And it is when we surrender that, we see the promise at the end of this statement, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. God's favor is on those who have chosen to put their worth in nothing but him. But what is the follow-up to that? God's favor is on the meek, so they inherit the earth, right? When you choose to give up the world, you are choosing to give up everything that comes with it. When you choose to give up all of the things that the world has to offer, you are choosing to give up everything that comes with it. So what's left? What's left? I love the way that the message translation um, translates this verse because I think it's so beautifully put. It says, you are blessed when you are content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. It is when we deeply know and internalize our worth in Christ that that is when we experience the joy of the kingdom and that peace that surpasses all understanding. But the hardest part of that is getting from knowing it to knowing it, right? We can know that, but that doesn't mean we believe it. And the only way that we can do that is by surrendering it at the feet of Jesus and trusting that process as he works that truth into our lives. Verse five says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. And whenever I heard the word righteous in the church growing up, it was always in reference to the men that God had called to lead his people, right? You know, we're talking like Abraham, we're talking Noah, Moses, David, right? They're the big guns, the big shots, right? And I, I seriously could not come up with something that accurately describes how I had envisioned them, but the best I could do for you guys was like King Triton from The Little Mermaid. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he's like this ripped dude, but he's also really old, you know, because Abraham was old. And so I, I just imagined him having this, this power, right? Like, Abraham was this powerful man who, who led the people, and Moses, he's descending from the mountain, and he's holding the law, right? And, and David, David was a little different because uh, he was this scrawny kid that beat up a giant, but he became a fearless king, right? So he was this fearless king who also played a rock and guitar. And so, but here's the thing, you know, that, that's personal to me, right? Uh, <laughs> but what do all those things have in common? All those misconceptions they have in common, it teaches that righteousness looks like their power or that righteousness looks like their accomplishments, or their obedience, or their leadership. And if you look at what Google says about righteousness, you would find that it says morally right, or justifiable. And that's not technically incorrect, but the thing that's difficult about that definition is who decides that? 
right? Who decides what is morally right? Who decides what is justifiable? Because if I'm calling the shots, I mean, I'm always morally right. <laughs> Seriously, if I'm the one who decides between right and wrong, I could never be wrong. But if I was calling the shots, a lot of people would get hurt in the process, right? And if I was the one deciding between right and wrong, I would end up way more damaged and empty than I could have ever imagined. And that could not be farther from the truth of what Jesus is saying that righteousness really looks like. So this word for righteousness in the text is zedekah. And zedekah means generosity. Isn't that interesting? When I was working on this, I didn't expect that. That zedekah means generosity. It means generously taking care of the poor. It means benevolence, which is kindness and charitableness. Right? It means having mercy. It means generously giving forgiveness even when you don't feel like it's deserved. And so to hunger and to thirst for righteousness, you are hungering and thirsting to be a kind and generous person. You are hungry for godly wholeness. So if you hunger and thirst, what does that mean? Right? If you are hungry, if you are thirsty, what does that mean? It means that you don't have food or water. Right? Your body needs food or water to nourish you, to sustain you. Your body is telling you that it needs fuel. So to hunger and to thirst for righteousness means that you are currently not righteous. You currently do not have righteousness, but you crave it. And you need it. And that's a wonderful place to be because that's where God is, right? That's where he sits. He sits in where you lack. His favor is on the one that is desperate to be whole. See, it's not when you finally achieve righteousness that you receive God's favor, but it's when you are hungry for it. It is when you lack it, but you know that you need it. And Jesus is teaching us that what we thought about the world is false, right? The world teaches us that money and power and fame and authority and control and self-preservation, that that is where happiness and fulfillment is found, but the world is wrong. The world says that you, the one that feels like a failure right now, the world tells you that the only way to be filled is to start duct taping your holes of your mistakes to try to keep you whole and no one can see your weakness. And to you, the one that feels like your whole world is crashing down, the world tells you that in order to survive, you need to do everything you can to put it back together. No one can see what's really going on, right? And to you, the one who can't seem to keep it together, the world tells you that you need to lie. You need to lie to everybody that you know because if they don't know that you have it all together, no one would love you or respect you anymore. But that is not true. Right? That is the opposite of what Jesus is teaching us. Jesus says, hey, you, the one who feels like a failure right now, but you're aching for wholeness, God's favor is on that. And you, the one that feels like your whole world is crashing down, but you're just praying for some relief, yeah, God's favor is on that. 
and you, the one who can't seem to keep it together, but you so desperately want to, yeah, God's favor is on that. And it might seem backwards and it might seem unfair that you don't deserve God's favor if you can't keep it together, but you have it. You have his favor. His favor is for you. You did nothing to earn it. You did nothing to deserve it, but that is exactly how it's supposed to be. His favor is on you because you are simply enough. Because when he created you and he said you are very good, nothing changed that. And so what's the promise that is attached to the end of this verse? Blessed are those who thirst or hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. They will be filled. That's the promise. It's not that they might be filled. It's not that they might be filled. It's not that they could be filled. Not if they prove themselves to me, then they will be filled. No strings attached. They will be filled. So what makes you think that your way is better? What makes you think that if you try to fill yourself, that everything will eventually be all right and you will finally feel whole? You are so empty. And the world has convinced you that it is so much safer to take the lifeboat with your duct tape holes. But how's that going so far? Like seriously, is it really working? At what point are you going to stop trying to make your life work without Jesus? At what point are you going to realize that you will never be able to make your life work on your own? Stop trying to fill yourself. Stop trying to nourish yourself because he is the bread of life that nourishes you, not you. And he is the living water that refreshes your soul, not you. God's favor is on those who thirst and hunger for righteousness because he loves his children and he wants to nourish and sustain them. And the beauty of the Beatitudes They are not these statements of things to aspire to. They are not these things that you have to constantly live up to. God isn't saying, hey, once you're finally righteous, once you're finally whole, once you're finally complete, once you finally have it all together, Right? Once you finally have the perfect house with no mess. Seriously. You do not have to try to receive God's favor. His favor is already with you in your weakness. His favor is already with you in your failures and your grief and your anxiety and your uncertainty. His favor is with you in your depression, in your loss. Do you feel lost? His favor is there. He's there with you. 
because it's not when we have righteousness that we receive his favor. It is not when we are really good and consistent at being meek that we receive his favor. It's when we are vulnerable in our humanity and in our imperfection and our acknowledgement of, I don't have righteousness, but I want it that we receive his favor. There's a Christian author named Jordan Lee Dooley, and she has these t-shirts that say, your brokenness is welcome here. And I just love that. It's so refreshing. There's this place where we can let our guard down and be free to be exactly who we are in the arms of Jesus. There is no judgment in his arms. Just peace and fulfillment. I was reading the verse of the day today, and it said that he is my hiding place and my shield. My hope is in his word. That there's this place where we're safe, right? A hiding place and a shield that's saying, no, God is, God is my safe place where I can go. He will protect us and our hope is in his promise of his word. But the challenge is believing that. The challenge is believing the truth that we are exactly enough in his eyes The challenge is believing the truth of Genesis 1 that when we were created and he said we were very good and nothing changed that, right? Forever and always, we will be forever good in his eyes and we must know and understand that our worth is in who God says that we are, which is very good. So what does it mean to live vulnerably in your brokenness? Knowing that it is Only Jesus who can fill the hole. It's surrendering that before him and knowing that his favor is on you simply because you are his. And here's the thing. If it's true for you, that means it's true for everybody. We talked about the setting of the scene of the Sermon on the Mount, right? the hodgepodge group of people following Jesus around and Jesus looks at them and decides to teach the Beatitudes to the disciples. He knew the mixed feelings that came along with each of these people groups, but Jesus sees them and says to the disciples, hey, you see the ones over there that are poor in spirit? Yeah, God's favor's on that. And hey, you see the one over there that is drowning in grief? Yeah, well, God's favor is on that. Hey, you see the one over there that's oppressed? No voice, no one listens to them, yet God's favor is on that. And you see the one over there that is just trying so hard to be good and to be whole, yet God's favor is on that. And Jesus is giving this beautiful pronouncement of blessings on people that we thought were unblessed. Right? That'll put a check in your spirit. So the same question of what does it mean for you to live vulnerably in your brokenness Knowing that he is enough and that you are enough in him is applied here. 
What does it mean for you to love those that you have believed that God does not favor? Because he does. His favor is on their brokenness, just like his favor is on yours. It seems backwards because it is. And that's the beautiful reality of the upside down kingdom of heaven, right? That he loves where you believe you are unlovable. And aren't you exhausted? I mean, aren't you exhausted? Isn't it, isn't it exhausting trying to keep it up? It's exhausting trying to keep up the facade that you have it all together. This facade of two yous, right? There's two yous. There's the you that everyone sees, right? And man, that you has it going on, right? She is so cool. Everybody wants to be like him, right? She's got her life together. He has everything that everyone wants. But then there's the you that only you and God know about. And she is falling apart. And he is so angry and so sad. And you're just looking for some healing. And you don't know how to make the real you match the you that you want everyone to see. But that's the problem. You're trying to make this inner you match the outer you, but Jesus calls us to match this outer you to the inner you. You see, you think you will be healed and filled and whole once you finally have it together like your outer self, but those things will never fill you because that's not how it works. There's no amount of money or fame or authority that will ever be enough to fill you. There's no house, no job, no relationship that will ever be enough to fill you. And the enemy's convinced you that you will be healed, that you'll be whole, that you'll be filled once you have everything. But Jesus says to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. To seek his kingdom first, to seek his righteousness first, and then all of these things will be added to you this is a call to surrender. This is a call to surrender that outer you. To surrender the life that we think that we need to be complete and say, God, your way is better. And I'm not gonna sit here and tell you that it's pretty. I'm not gonna tell you that it's not hard to face your wounds because it is but I will tell you that it's worth it. It's so worth it. Because you get to see the promise that you will be filled, that you will inherit the earth. You get to see the promise. And the reason you keep going back to that boat with the duct tape holes and trying to fill yourself is because you don't believe that he will actually fill you. You don't.
don't believe him. A couple weeks ago on our midweek formation podcast, Nick uh, shared a story about him and his dad. They were in the kitchen doing these trust falls and his dad gets down real low. I know some of you have done this to your kids. You're like, gets down real low. He's like, hey, okay, I got you. Fall, I'll catch you. It's like this low to the ground. That's a long way to fall. You know, Nick's all scared. He's like, I don't know if I'm gonna do it. And he didn't. That's, that's the funny part of the story, he didn't do it. Uh, <laughs> you know, but you're scared. You're like, that's a long ways. You know, what if you, what if you don't catch me? I'm gonna get hurt. What if I fall? I'm gonna get hurt. It's so scary to put yourself completely in someone else's hands. But Jesus is saying, hey, I got you. Fall, but I'll catch you. Because that's what it feels like to face your wounds. That's what it feels like to be meek. That's what it feels like to surrender everything that the world's got going for you and say, no, Jesus, I want to be like you. You got to deal with this stuff first, but he will catch you. He promised, right? He promised. He said that he will fill you. We just have to be willing to fall. We have to be willing to lay it all in his hands and say, you know what? Here I go. Some of you need to fall. We all do. I have got to fall. Because we have to completely put everything that we have in his hands in order to walk out the other side with the promise. But it's worth it. Because his promise is true and he has so much better to offer than anything that the world has, right? are you willing to fall? Jesus, we ask, we ask for you to see us as we fall. Lord, may we know and understand our worth in you. May we know and internalize our worth so that when we fall, God, we know you will catch us because you will. God, we ask you to kill the fear. God, we ask you to kill the fear that you won't catch us, God. We know that your word is a promise. We know that you always fulfill your promises. We can look back through generations and generations and see how you have never failed. You've never disappointed God. You've never disappointed us. So we must know and internalize that you will catch us when we fall. God, may we walk out this morning knowing that your favor is on us even when we feel like it isn't. 
that to pursue godly wholeness takes a lot of pruning and a lot of sacrifice, God. But you are there. You are there in it with every step, God. So Lord, we submit this to you this morning. We surrender on our knees. God, we surrender on our knees knowing that you made it worth it. God, we love you so much. Amen.